Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So welcome, everyone again. Good to see all of you. So nice to be here uh, in the Dharma. And we usually, when we meet in person, we go around the room and everyone says their name and we welcome you. It's harder to do that on Zoom. So um, if you like in the chat, please bring a hello, whatever wish you have for everyone or how you're feeling or what's up for you. And let's just put that in the chat as a way to welcome each other uh, this morning. Also, if anybody's new to our group or new to the SID, or you've only come once or twice and you wanna say hello uh, and introduce yourself, please unmute and say hello. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Hilliker. This is my uh, second um, appearance. Uh, so uh, Joe Diebel has introduced me to the SID and, and I'm doing a session with uh, Casey during, during during the week, so one-on-one. So um, thank you for uh, allowing me to be present. Thank you, Jeffrey. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Terrific. Great to have you. Anyone else? So you can just kind of scroll through um, the chat and uh, feel that hello. Um, with hope that one day soon we will return in person um, or maybe hybrid, but who knows? <laughs> so um, thanks to Sue who's here, uh, who gave me a stack of magazines. I found an article uh, that I really enjoyed and I wanted to share with you and read a bit with you. The title is Building a Better Self with a question mark. And this is written by Mark Epstein, who's uh, written many books on Buddhism and psychotherapy, which I've read. And this book I missed, I enjoyed the article so much, I quickly bought the book. And I uh, feel like the um, issue at hand is timely at the beginning of the year. When many of us, when January 1 happens, we tend to go into a self-improvement project. We take stock and we're going to clean up our acts and we're going to be better people. Uh, and the lists start. And sometimes on our list are very healthy and wholesome intentions. So, uh, those are the um, wonderful parts of the new year that we try to be healthier and um, move towards wisdom and expand our lives. But underneath these intentions very often is an egoic self trying to be a better project, you know, a better interpretation of myself. And this can create uh, quite a bit of tension and suffering and is probably at the root of why many New Year uh, intentions and things that we set don't sustain. And he's kind of pointing a bit at this uh, in this article and in this book in such a lovely and skillful way. And I wanted to travel this journey with you and share with you uh, some of the joy I had in reading uh, and just contemplating how we try to build a better self. Uh, so I'll read a little bit from the article and then share a bit on it. It says, he writes, ego is the one affliction we all have in common. So if you're alive and if you've taken birth, you have ego. You have this egoic structure. It has its pluses, it has its minuses. Um, the Buddha said, the minute you take the first breath, greed, hatred, and delusion greet you. Now, this is not said in a derogatory way. People take it in a negative way. No, he's saying in order to be alive, these things have to be alive too, to keep you alive. You know, they're not just negative. 
uh, because of our understanding, understandable efforts to be bigger, better, smarter, stronger, richer, or more attractive, we are shadowed by a nagging sense of weariness and self-doubt. Our very efforts at self-improvement orient us in an unsustainable direction since we can never be certain whether we have achieved enough. We want our lives to be better, but we are hamstrung in our approach. And I think all of you have had that moment in your lives where um, your self-improvement or all your efforts, everything you've done on your to-do list has a feeling of still not enough, that not enough feeling that pulls at us. Disappointment is the inevitable consequence of endless ambition and bitterness, a common refrain when things do not work out. Dreams are a good window into this. Um, and I just, I'm gonna go down a little bit more. Um, our disturbing dreams are trying to tell us something, however, the ego, so we're back to the ego word. The ego is not an innocent bystander. I love that line. This egoic part of ourself is not an innocent bystander. While it claims to have our own best interest at heart in its relentless pursuit of attention and power, it undermines the very goals it sets out to achieve. The ego needs our help. If we want a more satisfying existence, we have to teach the ego to loosen its grip. And part of our practice in Buddhism and mindfulness is not just concentration and um, peace and calming the body and soothing ourselves. These are all good things. Uh, building concentration is a fabulous thing, but it's also teaching that part of us that clings and holds on and wants more to loosen its grip, to let go, to let go into the way things are. And as he writes, all of the Eightfold Path is designed to help us loosen the grip of the ego. And he goes on, there are many things in life we can do nothing about. The circumstances of our childhood, natural events in the outer world, uh, which many of us were in a pandemic and we've had a tsunami warning. <laughs> you know, if you're on the coast, it's been a fun time. Uh, the chaos and catastrophe of illness, accident, loss, and abuse. But there's one thing we can change. How we interact with our egos is up to us, right? How we orient ourselves to the uh, unstable, changing world filled with all sorts of, um, of surprise and uh, upheaval, good and bad. Um, and he writes, I love his words and I'm, I'm reading because I don't think I could do better um, in this. We get very little help in this uh, life, with this life. No one really teaches us how to be with ourselves in a constructive way. I find that to be true. No one teaches uh, us how to be with ourselves in a constructive way. Many of us have had religious training um, that's filled with guilt, you know, and um, a mysterious kind of God, you know, um, and how we could avoid sin and prayer. But does it teach us how to be with ourselves in a constructive way? There's a lot of encouragement in our culture for developing a stronger sense of self. So we compensate and we build a better self. I'm gonna get a few degrees, I'll develop wealth, I'm gonna slim down, I'm gonna get a better complexion. I really believe that if there wasn't an ego, there wouldn't be um, Botox, you know, and not that I'm blaming people for using Botox because sometimes you have to have a young looking face, but just think about why is Botox here? Because the ego needs a better face. We need a better house. We need better and more. 
And Buddhism is the one place with also, um, he talks about psychotherapy, um, where um, we're, we're really taught how to be with this in a constructive way, right? In the middle path, we're not rejecting ourselves, we're not eliminating it, but we're learning how to find that wholesome uh, vehicle with wisdom in dealing with uh, the fact that we live in a narcissistic culture and world, the world of me. I get mine, right? You see it all the time. And um, there are very sad, sad examples of this narcissistic world and culture we live in, like our environmental difficulties to name one, um, and we won't go into more, but you know what they are at this moment. Um, he says, self-love, self-esteem, self-confidence, and the ability to aggressively get one's needs met are all that most people subscribe to. As important as these accomplishments may be, however, they are not enough to guarantee well-being. People with a strong sense of self still suffer. They may look like they have it all together, but um, building up, simply building up the ego leaves a person stranded. And you know this, you see people achieve and attain a great deal in their lives, and yet that suffering is not ended. So um, I'm going to pause here to say, um, what exactly is this ego? What is it? Um, so let's pause a little bit and just get a working uh, definition of the ego. And what I want to say with that is um, we, we use the word narcissism in a derogatory way in our culture. Um, narcissism, if you're being called a narcissist, ooh, that's not good, shame, shame, right? Uh, or if you're narcissistic, but I want to expand the word narcissism to say, and, and this egoic sense of self to say, uh, this is the shadowy side of who we all are. We all have narcissism. We all have egos. Uh, we wouldn't be alive if we didn't and um, coming to be able to see the narcissistic edges of ourselves and the egoic sides of ourselves clearly is freedom. Without shame, it's freedom, it's joy. There's a lot of joy in it to be able to laugh at these parts of ourselves. Uh, so in the ego, I'm gonna define it a little bit and we'll play with it. And, and my hope is in this talk, you will be lighthearted in looking at and find some joy and humor in looking at um, the, the scope of the ego and sense of self in an open way that can really touch in. And I think the best comedy does that for us. You know, the shows we like and the comedians we like, laugh at themselves and us, our, these tendencies. Um, and I can't think of one, but maybe you'll think of some to share with. So what is the ego? Um, the sum of all beliefs you believe yourself to be. It's that chatter in your head that defines you. The chatter in your head, and we take to be so true. There was a, a study once uh, they asked uh, people to draw their body, to draw their body, how they think the shape of their body, what they think their body looks like, um, and to try to be accurate in dimension and size. And what they found was that most people don't really even know the shape or size of their body. The, the image we have of our body is not our body, it's the image. <laughs> who we take ourselves to be is not who we are. 
it's the stories in our minds and the thoughts, right, that roll in. It's not reality. And the more we touch this in our practice, when we see thoughts as thoughts, mind as mind, um, we become free of this rigid box of who I take myself to be. It's like a box we live in. So uh, it's the way you believe, the way we look at ourselves, the way we see ourselves, the image, how we evaluate ourselves in worth, the personality we've constructed, our abilities, um, the way we seek protection and safety, the way we shield ourselves from anxiety. Um, we can have a spiritual ego which appropriates our practice into a better me. And you've seen how easy this is. You have a good sit and your mind is very still and calm. And maybe you found peace and ease and that craving starts right away for more. I want that. I don't want the sit where my mind wouldn't stop and my hip ached and my shoulder hurt. And I said the same thought, I ruminated the same thought over and over again. No, I want the sit where I had peace and ease and quiet. I only want that sit. Or you really um, read a spiritual book and you got it. And now you understand the Dharma and you're much smarter Dharma student than other people because you read that book and you got it. You know what the Buddha said. And so you, you are a much more experienced practitioner. You know what the Dharma is, right? Or you got a taste of enlightenment, no self at a retreat. And you come back thinking, uh, I know what enlightenment is. I, I, I know what enlightenment, I, I know, because I, I experienced it. So it's like this, I will appropriate anything to build a better I. And then you're stuck in the box of I. The I is telling a story again. Um, and this is the culture we live in. We solidify the I into very solid stories. And this is what the Buddha sought to dismantle. Um, so uh, you can only see the content of this eye becomes like a box that you can't get out of if you're staying in the loop of eye. Uh, and I'll give you a fun example of this from my own self. I hope, I hope you take it with humor. Um, the other day, we, we had to do some tree cutting um, at our home. And I didn't know that, um, I didn't know that when the tree cutters arrived, um, other things would arrive. And that is neighbors coming out from both sides of my home, uh, demanding the trees be cut a certain way and eliminating a tree. And, um, at, and during all of this, at the same time, my, the gardener who works on our home saw the tree cutter and sent me a text about how I failed to hire him for this job and he quit. And, you know, he's been loyal and why did I not give him the job? So at the same time, uh, I had neighbors um, on the right and left arguing about the trees the gardener quitting. And then um, Joel, who's on the call, came back from the dentist in the middle of all of this and the tree cutters. And it was like this funny scene that was not very funny, but life can roll out that way in a dime. Everybody's upset. You know, the, the tree people were upset because my neighbors were telling them to do things that I said, and it just went on and on. But there was this moment where, um, and, and here is the ego, right? Here is the ego. And I wanna to point to it in a playful way. So I hope you stay with me in a playful way. And it seems like I had gotten through every conflict um, with some sense of equanimity there. You know what I mean? With some sense of not losing, um, not losing some common ease, not being happy about everybody being upset 
but not falling into uh, that anxiety hole or agitation or anger or name calling or whatever. And that's the moment where the ego lands, right? That's the moment where we appropriate and we go, oh, is it the fact that we have gratitude for a practice that helps us through rough times? Or is it, I must be a very good practitioner because I saw equanimity. Equanimity is here. Equanimity is mine. You know, I didn't lose it. I was calm. I was, you know, you see the subtleness of ego is it owns life. And um, what the Buddha is talking about, that moment, it's very subtle. There's a moment, do you grab it and make it me? Now, most of us actually don't grab the positive thing we do. We tend to grab the negative thing we do and make it me. I was an idiot. I said the wrong thing. I didn't have a comeback. I didn't handle it well. I was a fool. I got taken advantage of. I let people walk all over me. I couldn't find my words. You know, this is another form of ego. We grab and appropriate a negative story about ourselves and we hold onto it and we create a self of suffering. I'm not good enough. I am deficient. You know, I am not, and you can fill it in. They're the same. Praise and blame are the same. I prefer praise. So uh, at the end of this talk, you can do the praise and not the blame because that's my preference, right? But in truth, praise and blame are the same. We create a self around it. We create a self around it. And when we create that self, we suffer. And so the Buddhist teachings, the path is uh, letting go of the better self, letting go of the deficient self, as letting go of that tendency to self. Um, but what I love about his book is it's not like um, a letting go that's like a, a spiritual bypass. Okay, I let it go because I don't want to be in pain. It's a letting go by fully knowing, being close and intimate to how this arises and being with it in a compassionate way, filled with insight and wisdom. And hopefully I'll have time to say more about that. A Zen student asked his teacher, is it okay to use email? The teacher says, yes, but with no attachment. So I'm just being silly to say, <laughs> who do we take ourselves to be? That spiritual self can be just as hard and difficult as the self that has to look perfect you know, or the self that has to buy the big house or the self that needs the fancy car. The spiritual self can be just as painful, sticky, and um, not very um, forward moving. Even that is not a way to say it. So in the ego, we have a few characters that I wanna mention um, and um, Let's see. Okay. So, so I want to talk about, um, Freud talked about the id, right? And one of my teachers likes to call the id Jabba the Hutt from Star Wars. Does anybody remember Jabba from Star Wars? Right. Think about that. And he kind of sits on this chair and, you know, I, I can't quite describe him, but go back and see if you can Google and find the images. Um, in Buddhism, we call this the hungry ghost. So knowing the the id or our Java and 
the thing about our job, there's beautiful wisdom in knowing the hungry ghost or this part of us that believes, that desires experience to fill us up, to fill the emptiness and to fill the whole. And the Buddhist practitioner really begins to know that that state of emptiness is um, not to be filled with experience, but is a point of wisdom and awakening. It's a point of wisdom and awakening that in that emptiness comes a fullness and a beingness and unbounded love and a kind of oneness with everything, the loss of separation. But yet in our culture, we fill our emptiness like Jabba like the hungry ghost, we fill it with experience, any experience, people, friends, um, seeking approval, seeking, you know, connection, all the yummy stuff, never mind um, food and toys and, and Amazon purchases and more Netflix and <clears throat> sex and things like that. There's nothing wrong with savoring and enjoying the good things in life. And many of us have first world um, privileges. We can have fine things and enjoying it is not, not what the Buddha is talking about. It's the filling up the empty hole. And our path really um, pushes us in some ways or points to being able to sit and embrace the emptiness, to sit and embrace it, to not fill it, but to become friendly with it and to know the emptiness in a deep way, in awareness meets the emptiness and there is an awakening. And the awakenings are many. Maybe one day it's boundless love, maybe another day, it's impermanence. Maybe another day it's one with everything, not separate. Um, maybe another day it's um, you see the causes and conditions and the emptiness of a self, right? Maybe it's deep compassion. But when we touch into the emptiness, this is a doorway into a deeper knowing of who we are. So we also need to know our japa. We need to know japa or the hungry ghost, whatever you like. I like Java. We need to know when Java is trying to cover that empty place, uh, that tender place, and that we work with our Java, that we're friendly to our Java, uh, that, that we know that we all have a Java that just wants to fill up on stuff, right? just wants to feel full. And the more we can turn and hold this empty feeling, right? This empty aloneness that we have, the more of the possibility we also have of deepening our practice. So that's one aspect. Um, and then another aspect of the ego is we've talked a lot is the super ego. And that's the internalized voice of all the rules of the society that mostly have come through our primary caregivers, but also, you know, aunts and uncles and religious teachers and teachers and people in your neighborhood about what you should be like, how you should behave, who you should be. Uh, and um, this is a painful part of the ego because it attacks our basic goodness and wholesomeness of who we are, our true nature of being, the sweetness of being. It can attack it and diminish it. And grabbing a hold of the superego and becoming very intimate and getting this superego down to size is so important in our um development as a practitioner. So these are some of the ways of ego. Now, um, what I loved about this book, so I'm going to pause um, and find my notes. Yeah. 
is that he's not doing the spiritual um, bypass in this book. And um, I think this has been um, so important. As I see it's January 1, I am flooded with emails about how to use mindfulness to fix everything. Everything. You can use mindfulness to get into good flow. You could use mindfulness to have better sex. You can use mindfulness to manage your money. You can use mindfulness to be more effective at work. You could use mindfulness to develop your communication. You can use mindfulness to um, fix your ADD, to fix your memory, to fix your lethargy, to exercise better. The list goes on and on and on. And guess what? A lot of what people are selling mindfulness for is actually correct. Research shows that mindfulness can help you perform better, um, have better concentration, maybe make better choices in your diet and in your communication in relationships. It helps with impulsivity. Um, it helps with just a greater awareness that helps us be a better person. This isn't the worst thing, but if we make mindfulness something like you're walking a drugstore and there's the mindfulness section next to the vitamins, you know, and you pick your mindfulness, um, book or course or I don't know podcast or whatever so that you could be better you never get off the wheel of suffering and this is the dilemma of uh buddhism meditation mindfulness it's like part of me um wants to run from it all. I just feel the pressure in my inbox of all the ways I can be mindful, <laughs> you know, and practice. And there's always another course to take. Um, so I welcome his book. Again, it's an older book. It's been around. Some of you have read it in that. Um, and I will give you the name of the book. Um, so yes, stay tuned. Um, <clears throat> We are learning a few things. We're undoing, we're, we're dismantling, we're not building up. We're learning that um, our mind, not to believe what we think, right? We're learning to give space so we can hear the truth of the stories we tell ourselves. That's one thing. More importantly, what we're learning is to cultivate awareness of awareness. This, we're, we're slowly cultivating the absence of a story, but awareness itself meeting the moment without creating stories, right? Just this, no story, just this. No story, no story. And as we learn to live that way, right? To arrive in the present moment and the awareness, we're learning, we don't need our stories, our identifications, whether they're good or bad, they drop. No need for another course, just that. But to get there, we have to visit the dark, muddy side of who we are, because we all have these shadowy jobas. Um, and I was going to read you, but I forgot, and, but I can read it now. Um, I was going to read you some of the, the ways the jaba comes up. But, you know, we all have our... Uh, primitive drives, our anger, our jealousy, um, our uh, shame, our darker emotions. And 
the meditation practice that we're in says, don't push that shit away. You don't have to push it away. Don't push anything away. Anything. But we learn to hold it with a warm, loving kindness and compassion so that we could see it through and dismantle it. Not because we pushed it away. We said, oh, you know, I'm a Buddhist practitioner. I don't have, you know, I don't have hatred. No, you have hatred, right? I don't act like a two-year-old. No, you will act like a two-year-old. I'm not jealous. I don't hate her because she has, you know, what I don't have. No, you will be jealous and hate. If you're breathing, man, you're going to be all those things over and over again. But we learn to see it clearly. Ah, oh, yeah, this is my guest house. I'm human. It's here, man. And we learn to hold it compassionately and honestly until it dissolves. And sometimes that means with other people, therapy, uh, sometimes it does not. Sometimes our practice is enough, sometimes it isn't, but we, we don't avoid the yucky, uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, we learn to have this um, equilibrium in it, but we don't turn from the fact that it is there. So uh, I find his book so helpful through the Eightfold Path because it's not um, a way that spiritual seekers can skip over the muddy stuff, but can really welcome the muddy stuff because it's the no lotus, no mud, right? So I'll end right here with reading um, a little bit from his epilogue and um, then we'll, we'll have some sharing. And you could see it. I've just, well, no, you can't see. It's hard to. Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, had a very helpful way of describing the relief that comes from getting over yourself. He used the expression mind waves to describe the turmoil of the ego struggle with everyday life. Waves, he would always insist, are part of the ocean. If you're trying to find peace of the ocean by eliminating the waves, you will never succeed. But if you learn to see the waves as part of the whole, to not be bothered by the ego's endless fluctuations, your sense of yourself as cut off, separate, less than, or unworthy will shift. This is a very particular way of dealing with the human sense of personal inadequacy one that is strikingly different from the Western uh, psychotherapeutic approach. Um, and he goes on, in the Buddhist system, change comes by learning to shift one's perspective. Self-preoccupation after enough practice gives way to something more open. The ego's instinctive favoring of itself erodes by a sense of the infinite. The Western approach seeking to strengthen the ego focuses exclusively on the wave. Suzuki was also, was always favoring the ocean. Um, meditation is not an engine itself and it's not a quick fix. It's a practice for life. When the most difficult aspects of my character surface, I know there is something I can do to not be at their mercy. While my three-year-old, my seven-year-old, or my 12-year-old selves may not have given up the ghost, I do not have to be their helpless victim. 
Buddhism is all about releasing oneself from the necessary, unnecessary constraints of the ego. I do not have to be cured to be hopeful. Um, the less we have to run out of the room by attachment or aversion, um, the more we have the mind's ability to observe dispassionately. Um, let's see. Well, it goes on and on and on. Um, we're not making anything going to go away and we're not fixing ourselves to be better, but we're learning to live with equanimity. In an insecure world, we can become our own refuge. Our egos do not have to have the last word. So I will end here. And um, as I said, the book is Advice Not Given. A few of you have already read this book. Um, and um, Mark Epstein. I would recommend this book as a book club book. Um, and if any of you are interested in that once a month, I don't know when people are around, is it goes through the Eightfold Path. And um, it's just got a lot of juice in here. It's, it's worth reading and worth reading again. So um, somehow we'll figure out if people are interested and when they could come to a book club like this, yeah. Uh, we'll do that. Yeah, because it's got some great material in here. All right. Um, yeah, so if you are interested in the book club, um, what is Don, what do you think is a good way for us to capture that? Uh, they could just, you could just put it in the chat and I'll, I'll uh, go through the chat and give you the yeah, if you're interested, you're... maybe put either your email or text, maybe email, because then we could figure out a day and time for people to go through that book and come up with a good date and time if anybody wants to do that. I know um, Jane is wanting to do that. Yeah. And um, this would be, we can, it's really a, a, a traveling through the eightfold path but really talking about the integration of um, our minds in a Western way and an Eastern way. So I, I just fell in love with the book and I haven't in, with his other books and I don't, this one just really, really a quick, I, I, I read it all almost in one sitting. I mean, it was really good. So, um, so yeah, I would love to hear from you please feel free to unmute, share um, questions, anything you would like to share with the group or just talk about your practice, please just unmute. Can you repeat and, the title? Uh, advice not given. Advice not given. If somebody wants to put that in the chat, I, I have to admit to not being able to talk and um, chat. <laughs> like, too much. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll type it in. Advanced Zoom skills, right? To be able to talk and chat at the same time. Like one of my um, clients, she brought in a, um, a performance review from her boss. And it says, um, like, Susie is a very good employee. However, she cannot do two things at once. <laughs> and I've always laughed at that. Like, yeah, can't do two things at once. Okay. So anybody like to share or yeah. I can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I, I find it um interesting. Sorry, because you really touched a nerve today. I find it interesting to think about yeah, there is this hole and I feel it all the time, but it makes me so uncomfortable. And I think that's why I want to um, do something to distract myself from it or fill it up. I mean, I've tried many different ways to fill it up. Um, 
is it does it get less uncomfortable <laughs> with time um i'm gonna answer you and yeah um yeah you know what we need to do sometimes is to um stay with this hole and this uncomfortableness in little amounts i you may have other things in small bits um, for a little bit and to stay in the body to practice just being in the body that's the buddha's first teaching is awareness of the body to have a long breath to go through the body to feel the body and anchor in the body and um, sometimes we need to be with others too to work it through, um, which is why I do a lot of inquiry practice around things like this. But the more we stay, the more it will unfold. It's like a trailhead, you know? Um, and But we do it in little bits. Thank you. As a matter of fact, I, I'm thinking of a funny memory right here, which is, um, the other day I was doing a spiritual inquiry with a couple of friends and we were um, inquiring into, and this is where you're breathing, you're in a meditative state and you're contemplating one question over and over again. And the question was, um, what is it like to feel no boundaries? What is it like to feel boundless love, right? What is boundless love? It's a beautiful inquiry, right? Not something you learn in the sixth grade or in the 11th grade, right? Uh, you know, but but it's a it's a worthwhile question. And so um, my friend um, who's in the East Coast, as a matter of fact, um, she when she we asked this question, what is boundless love? What is it like to feel boundless? You know, no boundaries, one with everything we're saying. And her answer was, um, oh, I don't feel that at all. I just feel this kind of deficient self. I feel how I'm not good enough right now, which is honest, right? And I was kind of with her. her yeah, I get that. I feel that. And then her next line was, um, the next thing she said was, oh, oh, it just feels so hard to be. And she said her name, you know, I'm just gonna say Judy, you know, I'm just breaking up a name. It's just so hard to be Judy sometimes, right? And I felt that too. I felt like, yeah, sometimes it's so hard to be windy. You know, it's just so hard to have that, that sense of self is heavy. And as she said it, my dog who is laying on the bed um, next to me, rolled over and let out the biggest groan, like, oh, you know, even he could feel how hard it is to be a Wendy or a Judy or, you know, it was like he just groaned from his belly like, oh, you poor humans, you know, but uh, so. Yeah, anyone else want to just share or bring their voice into the room? Sometimes we just want to bring our voice in. Thank you, Lisa, for sharing. Uh, I just wanted to say your talk today was Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, it, I sit at the beach. I, I live at the beach and I sit there and I look at the waves and I, I love the analogy uh, that you brought in. You know, each wave is, in, is an individual. You can see its birth and it's, it has a certain period of separateness from the ocean and then it returns to oneness. And uh, it, it is one the wave is one with the ocean at all points in time, but if that wave had consciousness, it would probably uh, see itself as separate and worry about its impending demise and all kinds of things that we wonder about. But so it, it, the self is real, the self is also, is also an illusion. Um, you know, just like those waves are really separate, but they're really not as well. And so it's very easy for us to get in our heads and worry about all kinds of things. Um, and one thing I love about Buddhism is it's really not self-improvement. Like, you know, you must believe in yourself and you must this and you must that. And, you know, all the stuff that we're always trying to do to improve ourselves. And then once you've reached that goal, it's hollow because there's just another goal, <laughs> you know? And uh, that's kind of the way it goes. Uh, but Buddhism is more about self-realization than it is about 
self-improvement and just seeing what's here, uh, experiencing what's here. Um, and getting to a point where we can experience that oneness with, with everything. Um, you know, Zen master Sian Song likes to say that 30 minutes or 40 minutes of cutting off thought and having a clear mind is 40 minutes of being enlightened, but you don't know that you're enlightened, but there's no experience of separateness uh, during those periods of time. You're not dealing with this monkey mind. You're not dealing with, with all of these uh, conflicting and competing uh, desires, uh, you know, the ego, the super ego, all of that, uh, all the suffering that comes from the self, from the thinking mind. And so this is a wonderful practice. And thank you for all the things you pointed out today. It was excellent. Hello. So I realized my own resistance at the beginning of the discussion around ego with this idea that, wait, but Buddhism says this, and Buddhism says there isn't this separate, you know, I was getting all very up in my cerebral, yeah, anyway, my conceptualizations about things, and so funny, like kind of, I, there's like irony in that because I was like, no, but it's this, isn't it? I don't get it and I, I need to understand it. And so I saw that and sometimes it's still a little bit of a slippery thing because it's like, okay, well, yes, obviously we need to have this separate self. We need to go to the doctor. We need to take care of this body. We need to do certain things in this physical incarnation to live. Um, so it's true, right? So there's that, I guess it's that sort of absolute truth and then the day-to-day -day truth of our existence in a body. In, and so, yeah, I was just, I noticed all those different feelings coming up, but thank you. I, yeah, you know, what you're really bringing up, thank you, for bringing this up is the fact that we have to live with a paradox that you know we're always it's the finger pointing to the moon but not the moon and there's so much paradox that we have to hold and live with and Carl Jung said this was living with paradox and opposites is the whole of human existence of maturity that that there's so much paradox in this and you know you're bringing up that you know if there is no self then why is my whose knee is it that is hurting so badly <laughs> you know? but i'm i'm joking but you know yeah hi um i'm new to the group i came here um via casey so i just wanted to say hello to everyone and um Thank you for for this talk today. It also resonated with me, and I really love the visual of seeing my ego as um, Java the Hut. Um, that is just it really brings a great sense of humor. I've I've also done that with my inner critic. I've given it a identity, and it's and it's it's just fun, and it just um, really kind of helps create that uh, that space. Um, for me to to, to visualize th that, um, I just wanted to say something also about multitasking. It's actually not; it's a myth. So it's great that you know embrace the monotasking. It's just you know our brain switching between tasks, and you know there is a there is lag time in, in between when we're switching tasks, and and those um, those do add up and can slow us down. So you know embrace the monotasking and thank you. Thank you, Erica. Nice to hear your voice in thank our you. group. Um, I think, now who mentioned in the chat, speaking of multitasking, that the book is got, uh, Jan said, it, there's only one left in stock on Amazon. Um, Don was saying that, I think it was Don or, well, somebody else was saying that you, you can also download it on Audible. Um, yeah, was it you, Don? Or, yeah, um, right. And uh, so that would be another way to access the book. Um, but worthy book to read. Lots of yummy, deep 
good stuff to to mine and using some inquiry with it would be great. Hey, Rick. Yeah, I really, really appreciated that uh, image that Anthony shared about the waves in the ocean in terms of non-dualistic thinking. That was, uh, that. I mean, when trying to explain what, you know, how dualistic thinking or whatever is, it's a fallacy, um, it's ego, and it just, I, I really, really like that. Th thanks for adding another tool to my toolkit there. I was thinking also that the, the last six months has been a rough one for me physically, a lot of, a lot of chronic pain in one way or another. And I'm, it's hard to measure what the practice has, how I've benefited from the practice because the, you know, it hasn't been adequate, you know, for managing it, but I don't know that it hasn't helped. I mean, it's just interesting when, you know, it's, it's good for a lot of things and I just don't know uh, because some things are just kind of hard to simply observe, at least they are for me. Um, and one more thing I wanted to share is that when writing poetry, I tend to leave, I mean, even narrative poems, I leave I out of it, uh, out of the poems as much as possible. It just seems to be a good way to practice getting away from ego. So, um, using an eye, no. you know, and even if, you know, and just, you know, make it more universal. Then I don't know, I've been doing that for a while. Thank you, Rick. Um, I can't remember Christina, who just wrote a book on mindfulness and managing pain at Inside LA. Can somebody, Christian Wolf, Christian Wolf. Um, Take a look, Rick, at her workshops and books and stuff like that, because I've heard wonderful things about what she's doing in that area. Um, and I think, uh, she's, I think she does a lot of the MBSR classes up there. Um, not anymore, but but she's doing a lot around chronic pain. Um, okay. So we're about almost at the end. And um, I want to say one more comment. Thank you all for sharing and putting your voice in. I wish we had time for more. Um, the, the one of the things about that eye, it's like a whack-a-mole, you know, you, you slam it down and then it pops up in another place. The eye will always be with us and our narcissism, healthy and unhealthy, will always be with us. So what we really need to learn is that um, not to feel um, less than or diminished when uh, a greedy or egoic or narcissistic part arises, but to really welcome it in the guest house as being human. Um, and and what we've learned is sometimes the more enlightened you think you are, um, the more the guacamole ego comes up. So it's not like it ever goes away. So please understand that we're dancing with our shadows. We're not trying to get rid of anything. Um, okay, well, thank you all. And um, Don, would you mind doing the meta and dedicating the merit today? Because the last one <laughs> sort of messed up on you. So I'd like to ask Don to do that. And before we go, please uh, take a breath. I'm dedicating this um, moment to in the memory of my dear friend and Kirshner and cousin whose generous heart, meta and humility has changed me forever. So dedicating our sit to great beings everywhere who do great things in humility. So thank you. Yeah. Go ahead, Don. Uh, I will, Wendy, and I don't have a bell if you wanna ring your bell afterwards. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so just like you and just like me, all beings long to be happy and free from suffering. May all beings have happiness within and the causes of happiness within. 
May all be free from suffering and its causes. May all live in equanimity without attachment or aversion. And may all know joy, genuine well-being, and how to get back to it. May all realize the equality of everything that exists. Thank you for your practice. Thank you, everyone. Have a beautiful day and week. Good to see all of you. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you, Thanks, Wendy. everyone. Thank you, Wendy. Thanks, Wendy. Great job, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. And many more. <laughs>